everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, welcome to part two of The Sewing Tragedy, The Murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. So in part one, we looked at the circumstances surrounding the girls' disappearance, uh, the search and backgrounds of Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr. And in today's episode, we are going to delve deeper into Huntley's involvement in the case, the trial and the aftermath. So let's return to our timeline. Huntley has just provided the police with his account of seeing the girls on the evening of the 4th of August 2002. So from day one, Huntley was really involved in the search for the missing girls. There was an intense media coverage of the case and a constant police presence in Soham. Both the media and the police were based at Soham Village College and so Huntley, as the caretaker, decided he was well equipped to help coordinate the search efforts and assist with setting up the daily conferences which always took place at the school. So in fact on the night of the girls disappearance Huntley was out walking his dog around the school grounds when he bumped into a policewoman who was looking for the girls. Explaining he was the caretaker she asked whether he could show her around the school grounds which he did, uh, towards the end of the search, they reached the school hangar building, which is where the, so like the PE equipment um, and just things for sort of outside bits, uh, bins and other odd bits were stored. The policeman asked Huntley for a key to the hangar building and he replied that he didn't have one. So as it turned out, Huntley was holding a key to this building, but he desperately didn't want people to go inside for reasons that we will look into shortly. So early on in the investigation, Huntley was aroused in suspicion amongst the police, the media and local people. Having told the police on the 5th of August that he had seen and briefly spoken with the girls, they attended his property on the 6th of August to take a formal statement from him and Maxine Carr um, and also a DNA sample from him. When the police went to Huntley's house, he is reported to have asked them, how long does DNA last for? The police officer obviously thought this was really, really strange um, and made sure to report this comment um, back to their super his superiors. A further officer later reported that Huntley had asked her how long DNA lasts on a body uh, she replied to him that, in theory, it can last forever. They have extracted DNA from woolly mammoths and um, also the Tsar family. And she reported that Huntley looked incredibly stressed and upset by this response. The officers that attended Huntley's house to take his statement and his DNA sample reported noticing a lemony cleaning fluid smell and that the house was spotless apart from the dining room, which had been completely ripped apart and all the carpets had been ripped up. Huntley told them that there had been flood damage in his property and that they were refurbishing that room. During the investigation, Huntley and Carr gave various media interviews as Huntley became a sort of unofficial spokesperson for the town of Soham. So in part one, we saw Huntley speak with Jeremy Thompson at Sky News, which was around 11 days after the girls first went missing, um, which is now one of the most infamous interviews connected with this case. How do we know they were here at 6.15? Well, we have an eyewitness. Ian Huntley here is a familiar figure. Evening, Ian. You're the school caretaker. The girls, Jessica and Holly, would know you, and they saw you on the front doorstep. What, what went on? The girl, I don't know the girls. Um, I was still on the front doorstep grooming my dog down. She'd run away and come back a bit of a mess. Um, they just came across and asked how Miss Carr was. As she used to teach them at St Andrews. Um, I just said she weren't very good as she hadn't got the job. And they just says, please tell her that we're very sorry. And uh, off the walk in the direction of the, um, the library over there. A few things around this interview. As you can see, Huntley talks uh, fairly confidently to Jeremy Thompson about what happened or his account of what happened on the night of the girl's disappearance but his hands are completely locked behind his back throughout this interview. Um, now I've seen various different uh, sort of body language and psychologist reviews of this interview and they say that generally speaking your hands are the first thing to give you away when you're 
telling a lie. And so he's locked his hands behind his back so he can't do things like self-soothe where you kind of cradle yourself and rock backwards and forwards. And so with the hands locked behind his back, as they were, um, he can stop from fidgeting all over the place. Also, which I think is really, really interesting and perhaps quite telling, is that when... He, uh, when Jeremy Thompson goes up to Huntley and basically says something along the lines of, uh, you knew the girls, he immediately snaps back um, saying, no, I don't know. I don't, I didn't know the girls. I don't know the girls, um, which seems to be him, his attempt to distance himself um, from the girls and what happened to them. He also concedes during the interview that he was probably the last person to have seen the girls before they disappeared, which is a really interesting thing for him to do um, during this interview, because at this time, that's not known. He's basically just given that information freely. And um, and it's, it's just very bizarre to see that he that he did that. So Maxine Carr was also keen to give interviews to the media. In this clip, she's talking about the girls and in particular Holly as she taught them at St Andrew's Primary. Uh, this is something I'll probably keep for the rest of my life, I think. Um, it's what Holly gave me on the last day of term. She was very, very upset because I didn't get my job. And that's the kind of girl she was. She was just lovely, really lovely. That's really very sweet, isn't it? So the most commonly noted point, um, which I've seen again and again about this interview clip, is the fact that she refers to the girls, and particularly Holly, in the past tense when she's talking about her. The news crews and the journalists instantly pick up on this and um, think it's really, really strange that she's doing that and reporting to the police, because obviously at this stage, when she's given the interview, nobody knows what's happened to the girls, and so it's really odd that she keeps referring to them in the past tense. So by this point, Huntley is well and truly on the police radar. During the investigation, he was spotted by onlookers manically cleaning his car and a journalist managed to snap him nervously perched on the edge of the driver's seat, biting his nails. So as I said in episode one, Jessica had a mobile phone that she always carried with her. After the girls first disappeared, the police um, tried to track the last signal, so the goodbye signal or goodbye ping, whatever they call it, from Jessica's mobile. And at the point when they first disappeared, they were unable to triangulate that to a, a smaller area. But now this at this point in the investigation, they had been able to narrow down the last ping before the phone was turned off. And it pinged on a mask which was located right by Huntley's house at Five College Close. The evidence of Jessica's last signal ping, together with Huntley's suspicious behaviour, together with the fact that they now received various reports from people in Grimsby about Huntley's shameful past and allegations of rape, was enough for the police to take Huntley and Carr in for questioning on the 16th of August. The couple were taken to separate police stations to give their formal statements. So Huntley basically just repeated the story that he'd already reported to police so that Holly had come, Holly and Jessica had come to his house um, when he was grooming down his dog. They asked about Miss Carr. She, he said that she wasn't very well, blah, blah, blah. Then they left all well and good. So when the police questioned Huntley, they asked him to describe what the girls were wearing on the night that they disappeared. I'd say blonde hair, um, short dress, Very slim. So when he's describing the girl's appearance, he pauses for what is in real time well over a minute and puts his head down in his hands and just kind of shuts down, which is really, really odd behaviour and the police definitely pick up on this. So Carl confirmed that she was at home on the day the girls disappeared and she was upstairs having a bath when they called around the house um, and so she didn't have the opportunity to speak to them. She also says that this filled her with great regret and she wished that she'd got out the bath or or had been, you know, there when Huntley answered the door so she could speak to them because she felt that may have changed 
the course of events. She goes on in her interview to give various benign details. A lot of detail about this, which um, is generally quite a telling sign when someone isn't being 100% truthful. They discuss really benign, um, innocuous details in a great amount of detail. So after around seven hours of questioning, the couple were released. Carr was to spend the night at a local Holiday Inn, whilst Huntley went to his father's house in Littleport. Something that the police had not disclosed to the pair during their question is that they'd also received reports from the people of Grimsby who had seen Carr out drinking with her mother on the night that the girls first went missing. And so the story that she told, the alibi that she provided Huntley, that she was in the bath when the girls came round, couldn't have been true. On the 16th of August 2002, the police got their first breakthrough in this case. As the police and media were based at the college, the search of the premises had not been as thorough as perhaps it should have been. When he was being questioned, the police seized Huntley's set of work keys and discovered that, contrary to his earlier lie to the policewoman that he bumped into in the college grounds, he did have a key for the hangar building. This was immediately searched and on the morning of the 17th of August they discovered the burnt remains of the girls' clothes in a yellow bin. There had been another bin bag placed on top to try and conceal the clothes in the bin. This vital piece of evidence was enough for the police to move on the couple. At 4.20am on the 17th of August, Huntley was arrested at his father's house and five minutes later, Carl was arrested at the Holiday Inn. Both Huntley and Carr were arrested on suspicion of the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. So on this time during questioning, Huntley takes a different approach and decides to completely shut down. He starts dribbling, he's shaking uncontrollably, he can't speak, he's just basically babbling, um, he can't say his own name and um, is essentially coming across as someone that's having a quite a serious meltdown but for Huntley this is a very familiar routine if you remember he relied on this in the past with um, Claire Evans when they when she initially wanted to break up with him he staged some kind of fit and she had to call the uh, paramedics to see if he was okay and he also pulled a similar routine when he was questioned over the rape allegation in 1998. Later on the 17th of August, the devastating news comes through that two bodies have been located in a small ditch near an airbase near Lakenheath. The bodies were discovered by a local gamekeeper called Keith Pryor and two of his friends. Keith described a pungent stench in the area known as the car, which is a really, really strange coincidence uh, that the area where two bodies were found is called the car and something I don't really I haven't really seen reference too much but don't think that's really weird uh so in the days leading up to it, this discovery um he describes swelling this pungent stench and so him and his friends decided to investigate the area finding the bodies Keith's friend Adrian Lawrence cried back to his girlfriend warning her not to come any further and to call the police immediately. He describes the bodies being barely recognisable as human as they were so badly decomposed. As they were so small, he knew they were children, and most likely the bodies of Jessica and Holly. The discovery of the bodies, which were confirmed to be Holly and Jessica a few days later, was put to Huntley and Carr. Huntley continued with his insanity act and the police had no choice but to section him under the Mental Health Act and he was sent to Rampton Hospital for psychiatric assessment to determine whether he was um, capable of standing trial. Under the pressure of intense questioning and witness evidence to show she was lying about her whereabouts on the 4th of August, Carr finally admitted that she had lied about being home that night. She said that she had lied and provided Huntley with an alibi because he had previously been arrested on suspicion of rape 
and that the whole experience had caused him to almost have a, a mental breakdown. Carl claimed that Huntley had called her whilst she was in Grimsby to say that the girls were missing and that they had been at their house. According to Huntley, Holly had come to the house of a nosebleed and he invited both girls in so they could tend to Holly. He then said that both girls had left the house alive and well and so Carr told the police she was sure that because of the previous charge he would be blamed and that it was her idea to concoct this alibi and protect her fiancé. During questioning, the police put it to Carr that Huntley's DNA and fingerprints were on the girls' burnt clothes and that it was necessary for them to come up with a false alibi to protect his innocence. However, despite the unbelievable level of evidence against Huntley, Carr remained loyal and emotionally bound to him. His fingerprints have been found the bag that no. the was in. No. Now you wanted facts and you wanted to know about the forensic side. No, Following the discovery of Holly and Jessica's bodies, there was an outpour of grief across the world at this great tragedy. Flowers, letters and gifts flooded into the town of Soham from all over the world. So Huntley was confined to Rampton Psychiatric Hospital for almost two months for assessment. He was under 24-hour supervision due to the risk of suicide. Finally, after a couple of months of observation, Dr. Clark concluded that he was mentally competent to stand trial for the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Dr. Clark did comment that Ian Huntley displayed signs of psychopathy, but that wouldn't affect his ability to stand trial for the murders. He was subsequently transferred to Woodhill Prison to await trial. On the 9th of June 2003, Huntley attempted to commit suicide by taking 29 antidepressants which he accumulated in his cell. In his suicide note, he said goodbye to Maxine Carr and requested that his brother Wayne not attend his funeral. So even after all this time, it's clear that he still held a large amount of resentment and jealousy towards his brother. Huntley was rushed to hospital for an urgent stomach pump. He later reflected on his life being saved, finding religion, concluding that God just didn't want him dead and that he had some other purpose to fulfil. So, still extremely delusional. Huntley was then transferred to Belmarsh Prison where he would remain until his trial. And I think one of the other reasons for this is that the security at Woodhill Prison um, was said to be extremely poor. And in fact, I believe it was the News of the World, there was a News of the World reporter who'd managed to get a job as a police, um, as an officer within the prison as someone that was assigned to look after Huntley, which is just incredible. I think he faked his CV, his qualifications, and he was able to infiltrate and basically get one-on-one -on -one access with Ian Huntley in the lead-up to his trial. And he ended up taking loads of photographs, which he then obviously passed on to the news of the world and were published, which is just completely insane. And so that, together with the fact that Huntley was able to accumulate all of these antidepressants to try and commit suicide was evidence that Woodhill's um, standards were just not up to scratch and so he was transferred to Belmarsh um, to await trial. At a pre-trial hearing on the 16th of June 2003, Huntley pleaded not guilty to murder but guilty to the charge of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. Carr pleaded not guilty for um, to pervert in the course of justice and assisting an offender. The murder trial started on the 5th of November 2003 in the historic courtroom one at the Old Bailey. The prosecution set out their case initially and went into great detail about the level of forensic evidence against Huntley on the girl's clothing, in his car, his house and in the hangar. After the prosecution had presented its case, Huntley was completely backed into a corner and he had no way to refute that he wasn't somehow implicated in the deaths. In a last-ditch attempt to try and get at least a more lenient sentence, he concocted the following account of what happened on the 4th of August 2002. 
So he admitted that both girls had died in his house, but it was by a freak accident. So Huntley went with the nosebleed story that he allegedly told Carr and claimed that he had entered the bathroom to try and stem Polly's nosebleed. The bath was full of water as he had been cleaning his dog that afternoon. He accidentally knocked Polly into the bath and she drowned. So remember in episode one, we discussed that both Polly and Jessica were keen swimmers and um, Jessica swam for the county and Holly was a very, very keen swimmer too. And um, so they were both extremely confident in the water, which makes it very hard to believe that she would have drowned in a bath. But even if they weren't, good swimmers or sort of notably good swimmers I find it very hard to believe that a 10 year old girl would just drown in a bathtub it just it just seems completely unbelievable to me so Huntley said at this point that he panicked and just froze Jessica having just witnessed her friend die started screaming at Huntley you pushed her you pushed her Huntley claims he then put his hand over Jessica's mouth to try and stop her screaming and accidentally smothered her to death. When questioned about why this was the first time he had put forward these version of a, this version of events, he claimed the trauma of the girl's death and subsequent cover-up had caused a temporary loss of memory. But conveniently, his memory has now flooded back to him and he remembers what happened at the time that he's required to give evidence in his murder trial. Good one. So he basically claimed that he suffered a blackout immediately after the deaths and um, telling his side of the story, he tells the jury that his first memory was of him sitting on the landing by Jessica's lifeless body with a pool of his own vomit next to him. So the prosecution didn't accept this version of events and said it was completely ludicrous. It didn't make any sense and basically dismissed every single word he said. Um, so although no one except Huntley will ever truly know what happened on that Sunday evening, the prosecution alleged that the girls happened to walk past Huntley's house completely by chance at around 6.30pm. Huntley then proceeded to lure them inside the house using his close, using their close relationship with Maxine Carr as a reason to get them inside. Once inside, again, no one but Huntley is ever going to know what took place. However, it is likely that Huntley's reason for getting them in the house was sexual in nature, given his previous offences and predatory nature. So the prosecution also put forward that before the girls happened to walk past Huntley's house, I think it was earlier on, on Sunday afternoon, Huntley had had a conversation with Maxine Carr over the phone. So if you remember, Maxine's back in Grimsby, going out with her mum to all the nightclubs, which um, apparently they used to do that quite a lot. They were like drinking buddies. And um, so she's going out with her mum, and I think Huntley gives her a call and they have a massive argument over the phone. And to do with, her going out, Huntley's uncontrollable jealousy. He doesn't want her doing that. He wants um, her to either come back to Soham. So he wants her to do basically everything that he says. She's completely under his spell and he wants her back. She dismisses this and goes out and does what she wants anyway, which makes him extremely, extremely angry. And so when these two poor girls happen to walk past his house, his mindset is already in a really dark place after having this argument with Maxine Carr. So the prosecution also alleged during the trial that the couple may have been grooming Holly and Jessica for the months for months leading up to the murders. So it's alleged that they both had discussed sick fantasies of sexually abusing young children. However, this was only a theory and there was no firm evidence to support it. When the girls' bodies were found 13 days after they first went missing, they were so badly decomposed there was no way of establishing a certain cause of death. The coroner concluded it was most likely by asphyxiation as there was no evidence of skeletal injury or a drugging, poisoning during the examination. However, the forensics experts testified that they had found blood on the girl's clothing, found the clothing that was found in the hangar, 
And despite Huntley's efforts to destroy all the evidence from the house, they had found blood splattering about the hallway and the main entrance to the master bedroom. So from what I've read, I don't think that they were able to get a DNA profile from the blood splatters that they located in Huntley's house. So we can't say with any certainty whether they belong to the girls. But if they did, this is evidence that they were either injured before they were killed or that they may have been killed in a manner other than by um, manual smothering. So this could also explain why Huntley, in his version of events, said that Holly had a nosebleed in case the blood was detected and matched the girl's DNA profile and he had to explain why their blood was found in his house. The prosecution alleged that the girls were killed in the dining room very soon after they entered the house. Huntley then carried their lifeless bodies upstairs and placed them on his bed. Again, we're never going to know what took place in that bedroom. As I previously said, the girls' bodies were very badly decomposed when they were found and so there was no way of being able to establish if a sexual assault had taken place on the girls. The prosecution go on to say that he stripped and bathed their bodies in an attempt to wash off any forensic evidence. When lowering one of the girls into the bath, he slipped and fell, which left a crack in the bathtub, and that was later seen by police when they were searching his house. He put the girls' clothes back on and loaded the bodies into the boot of his red fiesta. So it makes absolutely no sense to me, this. I don't understand why he would wash remove their clothes, wash their bodies, put their clothes back on and put them in his car. Uh, so in the prosecution said that this was his attempt to um, try and get rid of as much forensic evidence as possible, but obviously he's going to contaminate again, contaminate the bodies again when he's redressing them and putting them in his car. So it just, to me, just seems like an absolutely pointless step. So with the bodies in the back of his car, Huntley's next problem was how and where to hide the evidence of this awful crime. Huntley, in the years before the murders, had been an avid plane spotter and would often make the trip to an airbase in Lakenheath to watch the planes. His grandmother also lived in a retirement home around there and so he knew the area very well. Huntley took off towards a location called The Car, which was a wooded area that bordered the Lakenheath airbase. He knew about this area as he would often sneak in there to get a good view of the aircraft. Again, the fact that it's called the car is just such a macabre coincidence. It's just so bizarre. And I really don't ever hear anyone talking about that. I just think that's so weird and horrible. Uh, Huntley stopped his car and noticed a waterlogged ditch running alongside the track. So it's clear that Huntley was forensically aware to some extent, and most this is most likely due to his previous interactions with the police when he was arrested on suspicion of the rape in 98. Before entering the ditch, he puts two bin bags on his feet so he doesn't leave any footprints. So he removes the girls' bodies from the boot and lays them on the floor. Before lowering them into the ditch, he hacks their clothes off with a pair of scissors. In court, this was likened to how paramedics remove a critically injured person's clothing. However, in his haste, he neglected to remove the girls' jewellery and in the days after they were found, this is, one of, this is one of the ways that they were identified. So Holly was still wearing the love necklace that Jessica bought her back from her holiday in Menorca. After removing their clothing, he lowers the girls' naked bodies into a ditch and lays them side by side. When the bodies were found 13 days later, it is reported that the girls were lame arm in arm and with crossing legs. It's really unclear why he chose to do this. There was no logistical reason for him doing this. And if anything, it would have taken up more time and increased the chance of him being um, found trying to dispose of the bodies by arranging it in this way. So, I mean, maybe it was a sense of guilt over what he'd done and, you know, wanting to link the girls together. Um, although I think the reality is that this is very unlikely, knowing Huntley's personality and the sort of person he was. I doubt he felt any guilt over what he'd just done. And it's probably more likely the case that this is some kind of, I don't know, weird sense of 
artistry or something. It's just really bizarre that he chose to do this. Once the girls had been put in their final resting place and before leaving the site, Huntley poured petrol on their bodies and set them on fire in the last ditch attempt to destroy any remaining forensic evidence. On the route back, he disposes of Jessica's mobile phone in a shop bin, which was never found. He then makes his way to Soham College, where he enters the hangar building. He empties the girls' clothes into a bin and pours petrol on them and sets them on fire. However, due to the synthetic fibres and plastic parts on the shoes and clothing, it wasn't a clean fire at all, and really thick, acrid smoke starts to fill the hangar. Panicking that someone would detect this, he puts out the fire and hides the clothes under a bin bag. Unfortunately for Huntley, due to the police and media using the college grounds as their base, he never had the opportunity to return to this and dispose of the clothes. Huntley then returned home to begin what would turn into days of a deep cleaning to try and eradicate any forensic evidence that may have been left. He took his car to the garage to have the wheels changed and pay the mechanic £10 to forge the licence plate number. Which seems like a really big deal to me, and I don't know why someone would just take just 10 crappy pounds to do that. That bit just seems really, really weird. Uh, he then ripped out the carpet in the boot and replaced it with an off-cut of carpet. However, despite his best efforts, forensic teams were able to find traces of the girl's DNA and clothing fibres all around his house. They also found a large deposit of the soil that matched the soil at the deposition site so the place where he disposed of the bodies under the chassis of Huntley's car which he failed to check despite changing the wheels. On the 3rd of December 2003 Carr entered the witness box to give her evidence. As I said Carr initially stuck by her lover's side they would correspond and send love letters to each other whilst they were in prison awaiting trial. However, and seemingly out of nowhere, on the 10th of December, Carr informed the prison staff that she would no longer receive any letters from Huntley. In the witness box, Carr said she spoke with Huntley on Monday the 5th of August and he told her that the girls were missing. He said that they'd been in the house as Holly had a nosebleed. He had helped Holly and left her and they had left unharmed. Carr describes Huntley as being hysterical, that he was going to be fitted up because he was one of the last people to see the girls alive and also due to his previous rape charge. Carr agreed to lie to the police media by saying she was home in the bath when the girls came round. She went on to say that she had tried to convince Huntley to be open with the police about the girls entering his home but that he refused to do so. When questioned about her assisting him with the cleanup, when she returned to home on the 6th of August, she replied that she's obsessed with cleanliness. During her testimony, Carr went into a great amount of detail about how controlling and abusive Huntley was to her and how she, how she was completely afraid of him, which is why she had lied to protect him. Under intense questioning by Huntley's barrister, Carr screams out while pointing at Huntley, I will not be blamed for what that thing in that box has done to me or those children. The jury were out four days before returning on the 17th of December to deliver their verdict. Huntley was found guilty for the murders of Holly and Jessica by a majority of 11 to 1. So I was absolutely just stunned to hear that one person on the jury thought there was a reasonable doubt that he didn't mean to kill those two girls and obviously accepted, to some extent, his version of events, which is just madness it's just madness so in the UK the jury's reasoning um, as to how they reach their verdict is kept strictly secret it's meant to be the sovereignty of the jury you can't know at all can't speak about the trial and actually there's it, you'll be severely sanctioned if you do speak about um, how you reach certain decisions if you're a member of the jury um, and I know in America I think I don't know if it's every state but I've definitely seen jury members sort of like after the trial obviously go on tv and sort of talk about um how they've what happened in the deliberation and stuff like that that is absolutely not the case of how it goes in the uk it's it's kept so quiet and and so secret and um so no one will know how the deliberation went and how that one person 
decided that he he or she just believed Huntley's version of events to some extent. It's just it's just maddening. And um, so Huntley was sentenced to life with a minimum term of 40 years, although it's unlikely that he'll ever get out of prison. In 2007, the Lord Chancellor ruled that Huntley should die in prison. And so it's just really unlikely he'll ever get out. Kyle was found guilty for perverting the course of justice, but not for assisting an offender. She was sentenced to three and a half years, but was released after seven, 21 months. Due to the level of anger and hatred in the country towards Carr, she had her identity changed um, by the state. So she is just one of only four people, including her, that this has ever been afforded to. The others are Mary Bell and Robert Thompson and John Venables, which are the two children who were responsible for James Bulger's death. So in 2006, after serving just under three years in prison, yet again, Huntley was um, found after trying to commit suicide. He was found unconscious on the floor of his cell after taking a large quantity of prescription drugs allegedly um, taken from other inmates. On searching his cell, the officers found a tape which contained nearly two hours of what was basically, can only be described as the ramblings of a madman, but also a sort of confession thing was on the tapes the sun online published a small snippet from the tape relating to the murders I've pasted a link in the description um, to this podcast where you can listen to a longer version of the tape, but I cannot find the full tape anywhere. If anyone does know if this has been released anywhere, please do let me know. To me, I just feel like this is totally disingenuous and just full of self-pity. I don't believe this version of the killings either, although I think we're probably getting slightly closer to the truth in that he accepts that the killing of Jessica was deliberate. I guess that is something. Um, he goes on to say that he didn't want the families to go through a trial, um, which is why he ended up changing his plea. Um, but he did drag them through weeks of a trial before he decided to do that, before he saw the mountain of evidence or realised the mountain of evidence against him. And um, also he put forward an absolutely ridiculous account that the families had to listen to um, as to what happened to their daughters that night. So again, it's just just a load of crap. And then the rest of the tape is just basically self-satisfying rubbish, um, which is definitely worth listening to just to see what he goes on about, but it doesn't mean anything. He's just, just so full of crap. Being convicted of a high-profile child murder, Huntley was always going to be at the bottom of the pile in terms of the uh, prison hierarchy. And he was absolutely detested inside as much as he was outside. In 2005, serial killer Mark Hobson threw boiling water over Huntley, which caused him severe burns, and he required um, urgent hospital treatment. In 2010, armed robber Damien Folks, Folks, 
Damien. In 2010, armed robber Damien Fultz tried to kill Huntley by slitting his throat. Damien used a DIY shank made by melting a razor blade onto a piece of plastic cutlery. After the attack, he said to guards, I hope I have killed him. I've been planning it for weeks. Damien, in a further vigilante attack, um, strangled convicted child killer Colin Hatch with strips of bedding in 2011. After this attack, on Colin Hatch, um, Damien is reported to have told officers that he hated sex offenders because they just do his head in. There have also been various other reports um, on Huntley and his life in prison. One claimed that he started to identify as a transgender woman and wanted to be called Nicola. Um, however, this turned out to be false, although that is an interesting image. And yeah, at one point, I think I think it was like one of the crappy, like the Daily Star or maybe the News of the World or something like that, reported that he now identified as a, as a woman, that he was desperate to get into a woman's prison because he had such a hard time in the in the men's prison. And um, which made the story a little bit plausible because obviously there'd been several attempts of um, violence against him and 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 so on. So. But then it turned out that the story was completely false. Um, the latest controversy um, involving Huntley was that he got his COVID vaccine before millions in his age group. So he's in the 40 to 50 age group. He's now 47 years old. Uh, a statement response from the Department of Justice said that the prisoners were vaccinated in line with the priority groups as set up by the government. And a source said that Huntley had an underlying condition which wasn't disclosed, but that may have been why he was vaccinated um, slightly earlier than his age group, but no further details were shared. So there we are. Huntley in one fell swoop ended the lives of two innocent girls and betrayed the trust of a wonderful community. My views on this case are that Huntley is clearly a, pred is clearly a predatory paedophile and an opportunistic offender. I don't think that the attacks were planned. Um, I think that he saw the opportunity when the girls walked past his house. He was already in a negative mindset because of his earlier argument with Maxine Carr. He was obviously very frustrated and probably um, because he was unable to dominate and control her at that time was on the lookout for someone that he could dominate and control because that was just his personality. And he saw the girls walking past and just saw an opportunity to to pounce. To get them inside, I think it's most likely that he used their relationship with Maxine Carr, which was um, what the prosecution put forward. And I think that's, that's probably very, very likely. Maybe he said that she was inside, that she wanted to speak to them and they just relied on that and, and went inside with him. I think once they were inside and they realised that Maxine Carr wasn't there or maybe they didn't realise that straight away, um, but they may have started to feel uneasy and I think Huntley probably tried to make a move on them because I think his motive was predatory and paedophilic um, and either both of the girls probably started to to scream or cause quite a commotion and this most likely really panicked him and he would try to do anything he could to to silence them i don't think that the account that the prosecution put forward that there was a potential grooming i don't think um or that there was some kind of plan between him and car to lure the girls into the house I don't think that was true and there's, there was no evidence um, of that taking place in any event I completely agree with uh, Dr Clark's assessment that Huntley is most likely a psychopath and that he has psychopathic tendencies um, I'm actually really really interested in what characteristics make someone more likely to be a psychopath um, one of my favourite books is by an author called John Ronson and it's called The Psychopath Test Highly recommend it. It's a fantastic book. So if you haven't read it, read it. It's amazing. And in that book is a checklist which is put together by um, 
a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I'm not sure which one, called Dr. Hare. Um, and this is to determine how patients score on a test for psychopathy. So I've included a link to the checklist um, if you want to look at what points are included. And I've selected a few of the points to assess Huntley on. So the person is a pathological liar. Huntley was a complete liar and a complete fantasist. Um, he would regularly invent wild stories to improve his own image. As we looked at in episode one, he obviously didn't think much of his life and career, and so he would come up with wild um, fantasies of him being a pilot in the RAF and all the you know all different things like that to try and improve his image um, in other people's eyes because he was really bothered about what people thought of him. Cunning or manipulative, Huntley was extremely manipulative, particularly in relation to vulnerable people. He was really manipulative with Maxine Carr and um, would often seek out people that were more vulnerable so that he could manipulate them. So that one definitely applies. A history of early behavioural problems. So as we saw, as we previously looked at, as a child um, and a young teenager, Huntley would torture and kill animals. A failure to accept responsibility for own actions. Huntley refused to admit and take responsibility for his part in the girl's death until he was completely backed into a corner during the trial. Even then, he invented his own version of events which would put him in the best possible position. Um, Thankfully, this obviously failed miserably because it was just absolute crap. So moving on to the final big question. Did Maxine Carr know about the murders? When I look at the evidence in this case, it's almost really hard to say that she had absolutely no clue. She helped Huntley to clean the house in the days after the girl's disappearance. She came home when she came home from Grimsby. Parts of the house had been ripped up in the dining room all the carpets had been completely ripped up uh, the sheets from their bedroom were in the washing machine the carpet in the red fiesta had been replaced with an old off-cut piece of carpet and there was even a witness who testified seeing Huntley picking car up from Grimsby take her back to Sarum on the 6th of August who said they saw Huntley and Carr both standing at the open boot of the red fiesta and Carl was crying and they were both just staring into the boot so was this because she knew what had taken place just a few days earlier having said all of that could you believe that the person you love your fiance the person particularly in Carl's case that had such an unbelievable control over her could you believe that that person was capable of killing two innocent children so obviously Huntley was no angel, which she knew. She was aware of his past and the allegations of rape and sexual assault against him. But could she ever think he was capable of committing such a terrible crime? My personal view is that I don't think she knew. And I think that she believed the story that, she, that he told her about Holly having a nosebleed and coming into the house. Um, so even with all the evidence against Huntley and when that was put to card during the police interview, she just broke down in tears and said that he couldn't have done it and couldn't have been involved in in any of it. There is a part of me um, looking back that has quite a lot of sympathy for Maxine Carr, which I understand is unlikely to be a very popular opinion considering that she provided Huntley with a false alibi and helped him um, to evade justice for maybe that bit longer. But I do think that she was a very manipulated and vulnerable young woman, and I do think she was under completely under his control um, and under the control of a really powerful figure, well, from, from her perspective anyway. She was obviously an extremely vulnerable young woman. She had eating disorders. She had a wealth of, you know, issues when she was growing up. And it was likely that she probably had quite a few mental health issues that haven't been released and were never diagnosed. 
um, on top of the um, eating disorders. So she was obviously extremely vulnerable. She was described as being very, very childlike by everyone that she knew. And in fact, the reason that she was so popular at St. Andrew's Primary School, the other teacher said, is because she was basically on the same level as the kids there. So she just acted like a, a really young child and that was just her personality. I just think there's so much evidence to prove that Huntley was really abusive towards her. And I do genuinely believe that she didn't think that he had committed the murders. However, her lying to the police and the media for so long may have meant that the poor parents had to have gone through the pain of the investigation and, and not knowing what happened to their children perhaps longer than they needed to. But even if she did come forward at an earlier stage or maybe not have provided the alibi at all, it's likely that Huntley would have still shut down when he was arrested as he had done you know, previous times before in his life. And it's extremely unlikely that he would have admitted to the murders and told the police where the bodies were. So it may not have made any difference, but I don't know. I just think at the time she was just so detested for for her part in in this case and I think if this were to happen again or if this was to happen were to happen now I think people would perhaps have a different image of her and I don't think she would have been detested in the same way and I think perhaps people would have seen that she was in some ways a victim in this case as well. And I mean, this is probably going to be a really unpopular opinion. So, you know, please feel free to completely disagree with me. It's just, it's just my view. And I just think that she, I do think she was very scared of him. And I do think she was really manipulated by him. But, you know, if you completely disagree, let me know. So anyway, that's it from me today I really hope that you enjoyed the first episode of this brand new true crime podcast and please do contact me with any questions or feedback that you may have next up I am planning to do a mini series on the Chris Botts family murders which is a case that I am absolutely fascinated by I just find it so so interesting and so I just feel like I have to I have to cover it in, in some way. Um, I'm not entirely sure how it's going to go yet, but um, I am planning to do a mini-series because obviously it's a huge case and there is so much media attached to this case, so many interviews um, with the perpetrator and also loads of witnesses. So there's so much to cover and I'm, just, I'm not entirely sure about the format yet. If you've got any suggestions, please do let me know. Um, but it's definitely something that... I want to cover and I will post more details shortly. So with that, I'll just say bye for now. Bye.